Please do turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. Friends, that's on page 178 of the Bible underneath your seats. As always, if you forgot your Bible, grab that one, open it up to Joshua 2 so that you can follow along with us. Friends, if you don't happen to own a Bible, please take that Bible home and make it yours. That is your Bible now to read and learn from. Uh, When preparing for this sermon, I could not help but think of one of the heroines of World War II, a a Dutch woman named Corrie ten Boom. Any of you heard of Corrie ten Boom? A few of you. Uh, Corrie wasn't heroic because of her military exploits. In fact, she wasn't in the military at all. She was a civilian. But as the Nazi regime tightened its grip on Europe, Corrie and her family made the courageous decision to provide a safe haven for Jews fleeing persecution and the atrocities of the Nazi regime. They turned their home into a secret refuge known as the hiding place, where over the course of the war, they sheltered some 800 Jews from danger. Corey and her family were eventually arrested and shipped to concentration camps after their operation was found out by a Nazi spy posing as a fugitive. Miraculously, even though their father died in the camp, Corey and her sister Betsy survived. And since then, millions have been inspired by Corey Ten Boom's faith-filled courage, her willingness to risk it all to help those in need. You can read about her in her book, The Hiding Place. You might ask, what in the world motivated Corey Ten Boom and her, her family to be so courageous? Well, friends, they were Christians. And so faith in God and love for neighbors in need fueled their heroism. Corey Tim Boom came to my mind because of the heroine here in Joshua 2, our passage of the morning. Like Corey, the heroine of this passage risked her life to hide the vulnerable. Like Corey, her faith was evidenced in courageous actions that saved many lives. But friends, while you might expect these types of good works from a devout Christian family like the Ten Booms, you would not have expected it at all from the woman in Joshua 2. She was not from an upstanding Christian family, nor did she live a, a moral life. In fact, far from it. She was a prostitute. You probably already know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Rahab. Let's read about her here in Joshua chapter 2, the story of Rahab the prostitute. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, that she had laid in order in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal, uh, deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my mother and brother, my sisters and brothers, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Dun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. If you think about it, Joshua 2 isn't all that important in the main storyline of Joshua. Joshua, whoever wrote this book, could have moved directly from the end of chapter 1 right to the beginning of chapter 3, and we would not have lost anything in the main gist of the story of the conquest of Canaan. In chapter 1, God commanded the new leader of Israel, Joshua, to courageously lead his people across the Jordan River and into the promised land to, to possess it as God had promised the land to Abraham's descendants hundreds of years before. The Israelites' success in possessing the promises hinged, depended, rested upon Joshua's courageous, brave obedience. And, and so when you open chapter 2, friends, that is what you expect to see, don't you? You expect to see Joshua's courage in action. But we don't see that at all in Joshua 2. Instead, the faith of Israel's captain fades to the background, and what comes to the front is the shocking faith of a Canaanite prostitute. So why did the author feel the need to include this behind-the-scenes story? 
Well, friends, I think the reason that Joshua 2 is in the book is to show that even in giving the land to his people, God's primary aim is the display of his grace and his mercy toward outsiders, toward the nations, toward sinners like you and me. And of course, the ultimate author of Scripture, the Spirit of our God, knew better than even the human author did. God knew his purpose for Rahab in the redemptive story, which we'll discuss here later in the sermon. Did you realize that Rahab is mentioned more times in the New Testament than Joshua? That's fascinating, isn't it? It's incredible. Apparently, the Holy Spirit and the author of the new, of the authors of the New Testament think that what took place here on this fateful night in the life of this Jericho prostitute around 1400 BC is massively important. Here's the main idea. Each week, I try to give you a, a summarizing main idea of the text that I, I pray will be the main idea that will drive the agenda of this sermon. Here's the main idea. Friends, trust the one whose scandalous grace rescues and employs the most unlikely candidates. Trust the one, trust the God whose scandalous grace rescues and employs the most unlikely candidates. Friends, we'll look at this story in kind of three movements. Number one, the confession of allegiance. Number two, the proof of faith. And number three, the sign of mercy. Beloved, I pray that this morning the Lord might cause us all to marvel at his grace, at his kindness to us in Christ, to use sinners like us, not only to rescue us from our sins, but to use us for his glory, and that in turn we might trust him more fully with our lives. Verse 1 sets the scene for the chapter. Fresh off, receiving his commander-in-chief's marching orders, Captain Joshua sends two spies into Canaan on a reconnaissance mission. The city of Jericho, which was this strategic military kind of location in Canaan, just west of the Jordan River. Friends, the the fact that Joshua sends two spies into the land should throw our mind's eye back in time in the story to Numbers 13, when, when Moses sent 12 spies to scope out the promised land, and only two Joshua and Caleb brought back a faith-filled report. Here, Joshua doesn't send 12, does he? He sends just two. There's a bit of symbolism there, isn't there? Yet this time around, the emphasis isn't on the faith of the spies, but on the faith of the woman who saves the spies from certain death. In God's providence, the spies decide to spend the night at the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Friends, we're given no indication that their intentions for that night were sinful. Rather, it seems very likely that they chose Rahab's house as a strategic cover for their mission. Regardless of this, if this house was a brothel or some sort of local inn, the people of Jericho would have been used to seeing men coming in and out of Rahab's house. This was a place where the spies could learn a lot about the city while not getting asked invasive questions at the same time. But at the end of the day, these spies did not seem too good at their job. (laughs) They were noticed no sooner had they arrived, the king of Jericho himself being notified of their arrival. Friends, by this time, no doubt, 
word had reached Jericho about the amassing of, of the Israelites on the, on the east side of the Jordan. And, and we know from Rahab's confession that the people of Jericho had heard about them, had heard of what the, had become of Israel's enemies along the way. The city was on high alert. Verse 2 tells us that the king dispatched officers to retrieve the spies from Rahab's house. And then the following verses detail the heroism and courage of Rahab to save the lives of the spies. Friends, as you read Joshua 2, it becomes clear that the climax of, of, the, of the chapter, what the author really wants us to see is Rahab's confession of allegiance to Yahweh in verses 8 to 14. I mean, just look at verses 7 and 8 real quick. After telling us how Rahab hid the spies from the king's men, sent them on a wild goose chase across the Canaanite countryside, the author then breaks away from telling us the story to tell, her, to, to tell us how Rahab came to make such a choice. The gates of Jericho had, had closed, had locked shut for the night, seemingly to, to trap the men inside the city. But the, the author's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's not really what's important right now. What's really important is that you see Rahab's explanation for all of this. So before we look more carefully at Rahab's exploits, I want us to look at Rahab's faith, first of all, in verses 8 to 14. Number one, the confession of allegiance. What could possibly explain the remarkable heroism of Rahab? Well, look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Friends, I imagine at this point, you could have blown those two spies over with a feather. I mean, seriously, here was a Canaanite prostitute with an Israelite confession on her lips. Rahab rehearses for the spies, both God's grace. I know that the Lord has given you the land and his sovereign power that caused the hearts of the Canaanites to melt into a puddle of fear. He is the singular God who rules heaven and earth. Friends, what could possibly have given pagan polytheistic Rahab this type of confidence? I mean, after all, she was a Gentile. She was not part of the people of God. She was an outsider to God's covenant promises. If you would have told Rahab, hey, Rahab, Moses just died, she'd be like, who? who? Who's that? She had no idea. She had zero exposure to God's word. She had no firsthand experience with his works. She had no historic allegiance to Yahweh. No one in Jericho did. Not only is Rahab a Gentile pagan, the text says that she is a prostitute. She makes her living from selling her body. We're not told if Rahab pursued her lifestyle because of her, her passions 
or because of a desperate financial situation that drove her there. That's really not the issue. The issue is that she is indeed a prostitute. She profits financially from being used by other men who pay her to gratify their lusts. Even from a pagan perspective, Rahab is known for her sin. And yet, shockingly, this Gentile pagan prostitute with hardly any exposure to Yahweh, in the very moment of her first encounter with God's people, makes confident assertions about the one true and living God. How? How did this happen? Well, the text tells us, doesn't it? Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Beloved, what what turned Rahab's heart to faith in the Lord was that somehow, in some way, she had heard of the mighty acts of the Lord and she believed. Perhaps traveling merchants brought word from Egypt some 40 years earlier that the Israelite slaves had escaped from the only world superpower at the time, the nation of Egypt. That in what can only be explained in terms of divine sovereignty, Israel's God humiliated Egypt's gods in a series of plagues upon the Egyptian people. And then after the Israelites left and the Egyptians pursued them to the, to the shores of the Red Sea, the Lord opened up a highway through the waters for his people, then hurled the waters back like a javelin at the Egyptians, so that their army sunk to the bottom of the sea. Perhaps one of Rahab's clientele had told her just how recently Israel's armies defeated the king of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. The same God who brought a superpower to its knees was on the march again, coming their way. Friends, Rahab's faith just like any of our faith, came by hearing. What turned her heart was hearing about the mighty acts of the Lord. Friends, I think this story ought to encourage our evangelism. Maybe you feel discouraged this morning about your evangelistic gifts, your your readiness to defend the faith against people's objections to Christianity. I understand I often feel the same way, but rest assured that at the end of the day, what turns someone from darkness to light, what brings someone from the kingdom of Satan into the clutches of the kingdom of the Lord is not your gifting or your apologetic prowess. What turns them is an embracing of faith of the mighty acts of the Lord. So friends, let's tell our unbelieving friends and family about these mighty acts. I know there's a, there's a temptation to look at kind of the average modern person in 2023 and, and just think, no way. They, they don't believe in the supernatural. And that may be true for some. But have you noticed about how many people today call themselves spiritual in some way, even as they reject Christianity? Their conscience tells them that there's more than their eyes can see. They know deep down that everything here could not have just exploded into being. That life does not originate from non-life. 
That order does not spring from disorder. They know there's something more. And so they grasp on the things like the spirituality of the universe or the power of positive thinking or various forms of religious psychology or new age mysticism. Oh, friends, we offer something far better, something far more powerful, far more real, and far more true. It's the God who saves through his mighty acts. So brothers and sisters, let's tell them. Let's tell them, direct their eyes to our powerful king who spoke the world into existence. Oh, friends, tell them about the Lord's redeeming love that moved heaven and earth to rescue his people in Egypt about Jesus' power and authority and his mighty works here on the earth, his resurrection from the grave. Well, friends, give them your salvation testimony. Tell them the mighty act of the Lord to save you and rescue you from your sins. Don't be ashamed, brothers and sisters, to unveil our God for them. You know, one thing I'd love to see more of here at Redeeming Grace is a culture throughout our church family of inviting lost friends and family members to come to church with us. Inviting our neighbors, inviting our coworkers, our, our friends and family. Friends, I can promise you that by God's grace, Redeeming Grace Church is a place where week after week after week, you can be confident that a trip to Redeeming Grace is a trip to hear about the mighty acts of the Lord. And especially the mightiest act of them all, in the gospel. A few weeks back, one of my dear friends, Matt Smethurst, a pastor of River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, sent me a picture, or pictures, I guess, of four college students who had recently come to faith in Jesus and were being baptized there at RCBC that night. And uh, I asked Matt, how, do, how did these college students come to faith? And he said, each of them came to faith in Christ after attending services at RCBC for several weeks several months. He said, we have a couple of stud college students who are constantly inviting their lost friends to church. And I thought to myself, oh, friends, I want that to happen in spades at Redeeming Grace Church. And just Thursday night at our house to house group, our brother Neil Groudon gave his testimony of how he became a Christian. Those, those of you who don't, don't know Neil, he was the guy playing the guitar up here, led us in our singing tonight or this morning. Uh, Neil said it all started when his good friend, Evan Westfall, the guy on the drum, brought him to church one Sunday, the church that Evan's dad pastored. And Neil said, I had never been around people so loving and so kind. Friends, the combination of the love of Christ's body and the power of the mighty acts of the gospel is a weaponized combo to bring someone to faith in Jesus. So let's have a culture where Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we are inviting people to church to hear of the mighty acts of the Lord and be exposed to those who have been transformed by them. But if you're here and not a Christian, let me encourage you. If God is at all opening your heart to the reality, the possibility of faith, friends, you need to expose yourself to the Bible. You will not find answers to life's deepest questions by studying secular philosophy. You're not going to figure out who you are and where you came from and, and where you're going through a journey of self-discovery. The way to, to know yourself truly is to know God 
rightly. And to learn of his character and works revealed in the word and, and your relationship to him. So first of all, just as I exhorted our church family to invite non-Christians to church, I pray that you will keep coming to church, keep coming and attending our gatherings. And second, let me suggest one other thing. Ask one of your Christian friends to read the Bible with you. Uh, start in, the, in, a, in a gospel like Mark or John. These gospels contain detailed eyewitness testimony about the life and ministry of Jesus, just like Joshua contains eyewitness testimony of the acts of the Lord back then. And because the word of God is actual, actually God's power in written form, the way you'll encounter God is by encountering the Bible. Friends, clearly what happened to Rahab was an act of God's sovereign grace in opening her heart to believe. You know why? Because everybody else around her in Jericho heard those same reports. They heard of those acts of the Lord and their hearts remained hard. Maybe they feared the possibility of coming judgment, but only Rahab feared the God behind it. Only Rahab was convinced that the God she worshiped were impotent and that the Lord God of Israel reigns. Friends, who knows what God was doing at that point in her life? I'd love to ask Rahab someday when we get to heaven. Rahab, had you grown disillusioned by the idolatry of Jericho? Was your life so much in the gutter of sin and so unsatisfying that, that you just longed for more? Well, what was it in your experience that made the reports from across the Jordan come alive in your heart? We don't know exactly. But friends, it's clear that Rahab's confession moved beyond intellectual assent to heart allegiance. And look at verses 12 to 15. In verses 12 to 15, Rahab moves from confessing who God is to a pursuit of refuge from his judgment. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my brother and, or excuse me, my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Friend, genuine faith, the type of faith through which God saves people from the penalty of sin is not content with merely being convinced of the reality of God. As if just being a monotheist is enough. No, it runs to take refuge in the God of the confession. It's never enough to know in theory about the holiness of God if you never seek escape from his holy wrath against your sin. It's not enough to be correct you must admit your great need. In a sense, that's all God asks. He calls us to humbly admit that we have no inherent goodness or righteousness or ability to achieve our redemption. We must find it in him. Like Rahab, faith seeks shelter from the wrath of God in the mercy of God. For whatever reason, perhaps just due to the miracle of the new birth, Rahab heard the reports of God's mighty acts and thought to herself, maybe this God would include me, an outsider prostitute among his people. Oh, Rahab, yes, he would. And for everyone who turns from their sin to trust in him.
Verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Friends, these words translated kindly and faithfully are two of the most important words in the entire Bible. Uh, kindly is from the word hesed, uh, uh, used so often in the Old Testament to describe God's loyal covenant love for his people. Faithfully from the Hebrew word emet, which all throughout the, the, the Old Testament is, is paired together with hesed. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. So what the spies promise Rahab is an expression, a reflection of the love of God found in covenant with his people. They promise Rahab a place within the covenant community because of her faith in the Lord. Friends, Rahab's allegiance had shifted. As long as she followed the Lord, there would be a place for her within the people of God. The confession of allegiance. Secondly, let's look at the proof of faith. The proof of faith. Friends, when you read this story, a question that might come to mind is, John, how do we know for sure that, that Rahab's confession was genuine? I was asked that question yesterday, actually. How do we know that she didn't kind of stick a wet finger into the air, right? Into the wind of current events in 1400 BC Canaan and kind of slickly maneuver to curry the favor of the enemy army. How do we know Rahab was legit? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first is in the text itself. And the second is in the New Testament commentary on the text. Friends, the easy, obvious proof that Rahab's allegiance had shifted from the gods of Canaan to the one true and living God was her actions that fateful night. I want you to think about this. When the king's men came knocking on Rahab's door, friends, she had nothing from a human level, from a human standpoint, to gain. She had everything to lose. Friends, hiding the spies that night was an act of treason, sedition against the king of Jericho. Knowingly giving quarter to an enemy of the state would have earned her and likely her entire family a speedy death, most likely after a lengthy torture. Imagine for a moment in your mind the terror you would feel in your heart if the FBI or the local police pounded on your door or raided your home in the middle of the night. I'll never forget the time this kind of happened to Lindsay and me early on in our marriage. It's probably 1 or 2 a.m. in the night, and waking us from our deep slumber was bam, 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 bam. Both of us shot up like a cannon <laughs> in our bed, looked down from our second-story window, and seven of Louisville's finest were gathered in our front yard. Friends, you know what Lindsay's first words out of her mouth were? John, what did you do? <laughs> Come to find out, we had left our garage door open, and the automatic light of the garage door was flickering on and off, so our neighbors feared, that, feared the worst and called the cops at 2 a.m., to make a wellness check. Apparently, there wasn't enough happening in Louisville that night because seven cops had to show up to check on how we were doing. Now, friends, think about a situation in which the authorities weren't coming to help, but to find out what you're up to. In that very moment, Rahab was faced with a life and death choice. 
the safest route would have been to give up the spies and save her neck. But apparently, Rahab had already done the math. She had already made the calculation. It seems that she had already come to faith in the Lord. And then Israelite spies, after her initial faith in, in the Lord, Israelite spies randomly show up at her doorstep and come into her house. And in that moment, she becomes convinced that siding with Israel and their God against her people was the only right course of action. One of the more riveting details in this story is that aside from hiding the spies, the very first evidence of Rahab's new faith in God was a lie that she told to the king's men. Actually, a series of four lies. Verse 4, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Four lies, right in a row. Christians down through the ages have asked the question of this moment. It seems like a very logical question to ask. Was Ahab right to lie? Or was that sinful and the Lord just overlooked it because of the newness of her faith? Uh, some Christian ethicists defend Rahab's actions as a, as a necessary part of wartime espionage or, or, or a righteous action to save the life of God's people against the seed of the serpent, against God's enemies. Others have said, no, she was wrong to lie. That was sinful, but we can forgive her. And God clearly did because of her background and the pressure that it, she was under as a new believer. I suppose you want to know what I think. Here's what I think. Whether Rahab sinned or not is not the point of the passage. You know what the point of the passage is? What Rahab did is proof of her living, active faith in the Lord. In Hebrews 11, we read of those who were models of faith in the Lord and among them, the likes of Noah and Moses and Gideon and David and Daniel. And you know who's right alongside them? Rahab, the prostitute. Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Hebrews 11.31. Friends, if you skip ahead in the story to Joshua 6, which we'll be there in a few weeks, you'll learn that the Israelites kept their word to Rahab and, and their family, when, and her family, when they were, uh, they were saved when, when Jericho was judged. Why? Why was Rahab saved? Because she, by faith, had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She, by faith, aligned herself on the Lord's side. And then as we read earlier, James and James 2 picks two examples this is amazing. Two examples from the entire Old Testament to illustrate his point in the chapter that true faith is always accompanied by works that flow out of faith. Faith without works is dead faith. It's not real. It's not genuine. Genuine trust in God always, always, always produces acts of obedience and love. And who are the two examples that James picks to illustrate this? Father Abraham himself, and Rahab the prostitute. It's unbelievable. 
So friends, I'm sorry if this seems like a bit of a cop-out or if I'm punting on a hard ethical dilemma, but I think if you were to ask the original Israelite readers of Joshua or the author of Hebrews or James himself that question, did Rahab sin when she lied to the king's men? They would look at you like you had a horn growing out the side of your head. What in the world are you talking about, man? That is not the point at all. Rahab saved God's people. She trusted the Lord. She was courageous in the face of death. She staked her life, her livelihood, her family on the limited knowledge that she had about God. And that very moment that the king's men pounded on the door, Rahab decided to cross the line of allegiance to Yahweh. I'm taking my stand on the Lord's side. Live or die, I'm with him. And so when we read the story of Rahab, James's earlier words in James 2 should echo in our heads. Show me your faith apart from my works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You know, coming out of Joshua 1, you would expect to see this type of courage out of the captain of the Lord's army. But when chapter 2 opens, it's not the protector of Israel that courageously follows Yahweh, but the prostitute of Canaan. It's incredible. Rahab's example reminds us, friends, that it is never enough to merely confess the right stuff about God. Having a solid doctrinal statement and good theology is important, but rest assured, friends, there are thousands of theologically educated people who will suffer God's condemnation for all eternity, including the very demons themselves. They had all their theological ducks in a row damned forever. The proof of faith is not in what you know, but in who you follow and how you live. Is your faith, friends, like Rahab's? Is it real, living faith that works itself out in love and good deeds? It strikes me that in our lives, in our lifetime, there will probably be only a handful of times that you and I have to dramatically publicly pick a side. Are we standing with the kingdom of the world or with the kingdom of our God? A family member ridicules you for being a Christian in front of the rest of your family. What will you do? What will you say? Your company tells you that you have to celebrate Pride Month. It's coming up. You have to celebrate Pride Month openly. How will you respond? Perhaps there's coming a day in our secularizing, growingly hostile to Christians world that you will be faced with a public choice to pick your livelihood or pick Jesus, your income or Jesus, your reputation or Jesus. Friends, I pray that in that moment, you'll remember the sovereign and gracious God of Rahab and that you'll take your stand with him. But you know, what you and I have to do on a regular basis, dare I say a daily or hourly basis, we're faced with repeated dilemmas on a much, much smaller scale. Will we take the Lord's side or not? Each time sin and temptation comes knocking on the door, it's a test of our allegiance to our God. Who will we side with? Who do you believe is better and more glorious and more satisfying? 
false gods or the real, true, and living God. Oh, friends, the many kings who pretend to offer protection in life, will you give your allegiance to them or will you give it to our God in Christ through his spirit? Where do you really think that true life is found? A real faith in Jesus doesn't mean that we'll be free of sin in this life. It doesn't mean that we'll be free of significant struggle and sin sometimes. What it does mean, friends, is that Christ is more precious to us than anything this world has to offer. That our greatest desire is to align ourselves with him. When faced with the test of allegiance, friends, whose side are you on? The confession of allegiance, the proof of faith, and finally the sign of mercy. The sign of mercy. Verses 15, or excuse me, verse 15 describes how the spies got out of the city despite the gates being locked down for the night. Apparently, Rahab's house was, was built into the city wall. And so the, the spies, all they had to do was just rappel down the wall from her house's window into the night to safety. By the way, um, side note, archaeological excavation in Israel has revealed not only did Jericho have a double wall in ancient Jericho, it's also revealed in ancient ruins of houses being built right into the side of the city wall, just like Joshua 2 describes. In verse 17, the spies pledge themselves to their promise to save Rahab and her family as the reward of her saving their lives. Verse 18 says that the spies told Rahab to tie a scarlet cord in the window as a sign to the Israelite army of who she was. This, this red rope would be a visible symbol of Rahab's allegiance to the Lord and the sign of mercy over the house. Verse 19 warns that if Rahab or her family leaves the protection of the house to which the scarlet cord is attached, their blood's going to be on their own head. But as long as they're inside the house of the cord, they would all be spared from judgment. Friends, as you may know, there's a long ancient tradition of believers allegorizing this scarlet cord, likening it to, the, to what? The blood of Christ. You've heard it which secures mercy instead of judgment for all who trust in him. The cord's red, the blood's red. There it is, the cord symbolizes the blood. I used to think that type of interpretation was just entirely silly and wrong. And, and I, I still do if you're just talking about the color alone being the symbol that has meaning. But friends, I think there is a deeper layer of meaning and significance underlying this entire episode. I want you to think about this with me. In the first six chapters of Joshua, the author uses a word repeatedly, and it seems intentional. And that's the words translated in our English, pass over. Pass over. You can see it there in verse 23. The two spies returned from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua. In Joshua 3, God is going to roll back the waters of the Jordan just like he did where? At the Red Sea after the Exodus. In chapter 5, a new generation was circumcised in obedience to the law, and then they celebrated what? The first Passover in Canaan. And when you look at it carefully, this idea 
of putting something that's red on a house as a visible sign of God's mercy that protects everyone in the house from God's judgment sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like the great and awful night when God commanded the children of Israel to smear the blood of a slain lamb on the doorposts of their house so that when the angel of judgment and death descended upon Egypt, he would pass over in mercy those who were covered by the blood. Beloved, I think what we see in the scarlet cord and the saving of Rahab and her family is nothing less than a little mini reenactment of the Passover event, which of course very much does point us forward to the fulfillment of it all when Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. What could possibly shield us from the justice and wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the sinless lamb of God shed for us. His life for ours, his death for our sin. He took what we deserve so that we might be cleansed and restored and reconciled to God. You see, friends, within this this temporal salvation of Rahab from Jericho's judgment is a picture of her eternal salvation from the penalty of her sin, from the penalty of your sin and of my sin. The only way to be shielded from what we really deserve is to find refuge underneath the shelter that God prescribes. We must run to God by faith and trust in him alone. And on this side of the cross, we know that we find refuge in his son who lived and died and rose again to save us. Friends, this is beautiful. This is scandalous grace to Rahab. Grace and mercy that could take a prostitute, a woman of the night, and make her part of the people of God. That's what happened, you know. That's exactly what happened. After the destruction of Jericho, Joshua 6.25 says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy on Jericho. Beloved, this story reminds us that God's grace in the gospel is not for got it together, middle-class Americans only. This gospel is for the lowest of the low, from the most shameful of the shamed, the vilest of the vile, who would come to Jesus in repentant faith. It's for people like you and like me. The world says that the way to happiness The way to be relieved of these type of burdens is to just forgive yourself. Friends, most of us know that the darkness of our hearts is far too black for that to do any good at all. Rather, we need a forgiveness and a release from our guilt from the outside, from the very one whom we have offended. And that's what God gives us in Christ. In Christ, he provides safety from his own judgment so that he might show us mercy for all eternity. You know, I've spent the last couple of days, friends, just thanking the Lord for the ministry of Tim Keller after his death on, on, on Thursday. I'm sure you've heard about it. Keller wrote this. I love the way he could phrase the beauty of the gospel. 
Keller said, the gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. That's the grace of God in Christ. Friends, no one, and I mean no one, is beyond the reach of God's grace. Friends, don't give up on someone. Don't give up on your family member who's wayward. Don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on your coworkers because their lifestyle is flagrantly sinful. Just look at Rahab. Love them, love them like Jesus loved the prostitutes and sinners, right? He never affirmed their sin, but he always affirmed their worth to God. Don't stop sharing the good news. Friends, God not only employed Rahab to save the spies and thereby gave confidence to Israel that the land was in their hands. God employed Rahab in a much bigger way. When we turn to the very first verses of the New Testament, you read in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Rahab was not just rescued from judgment. She wasn't merely transformed from her life of sin. She wasn't only included as a full participant in the life of God's people. In God's scandalous grace, Rahab the Gentile, Rahab the outsider, Rahab the prostitute became the foremother of Jesus, the king. The mercy of God is so vast, it is so wide, it is so overwhelmingly generous that former prostitutes form the bloodline of the Savior. This is a gospel that assures us that we are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And so we trust the one whose scandalous grace rescues and employs the most unlikely candidates for use in his kingdom, sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, sometimes there is nothing that we can do but stand back in awe and wonder. Considering our life, considering your grace, and sing hallelujah, what a savior. To praise your name that Christ is ours and we are his forevermore. Oh, Father, may we live as the glad display of your grace by faith. For all of our days, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.